Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 121 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. I don't know if you caught the following stories recently. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the Jubilee Act providing debt relief for third world nations. Progressive Mexican legislators occupied both their houses of Congress in protest of a proposed oil law. Starving people rioted all over the world in protest of rapidly rising food prices. Did you see the mainstream media tie all these stories together? Of course not. Do you know what all these stories have in common? I'm going to tell you, tie them all together for you here today. Let's get right into it. The sources you'll hear include the Associated Press, the New York Times, JubileeUSA.org, the Toronto Star, the Brookings Institution, and AmericanRhetoric.com. First, some background so you can better understand the major significance of the House of Representatives passing the Jubilee Act this week. In the last part of the 20th century, Western banks and multilateral lending institutions literally went wild. They lent huge sums of money to corrupt right-wing dictators and military hunters. Whatever the stated purpose of the loans, the lenders knew that the money wasn't going to be used to benefit the people of those nations. Quite the opposite. Those funds were mostly used to finance repression of the citizenry and stolen for private gain by those corrupt leaders. Dictators in nations like South Africa, Nicaragua, the Congo and the Philippines racked up billions, sometimes tens of billions of dollars in debt. They personally stole for themselves anywhere from hundreds of millions to in one case ten billion dollars. And as far as repaying those loans, you think the right-wing dictators were going to fork over the cash? No way. The already impoverished citizens of those nations had to repay the loans through their taxes. Not just the principal, but interest as well. Over the years, the interest added up in many cases to many times the actual loan itself. How is this different from racketeering? You're right, it's not. Imagine a bank that continues to loan money to a corporation when it knows that the CEO is stealing the money, not using it for the benefit of the shareholders. No one would seriously argue that the corporation should be required to repay such a loan to such a bank. Yet each day, poor third world nations make over $100 million in debt repayments to rich Western nations and wealthy financial institutions. Many of these indebted nations are forced to spend far more on repaying these loans than on food subsidies and health care and education and other life and death needs of their people. Something's wrong here. Julius Nyerere, former president of Tanzania, put it bluntly, Must we starve our children to pay our debts? Okay, Given that level of injustice, what would the just-passed Jubilee Act do? The U.S. Treasury Department would arrange with the IMF and the World Bank to cancel the debt of 24 impoverished countries that haven't yet gotten debt relief. With the proper safeguards, which the Act requires, that freed-up money now won't go into the pockets of first-world lenders who never should have lent the money in the first place. Instead, those funds will be used to provide clean water, basic health care, 
education and the like to men, women, and children in desperate need. Prior debt cancellations in 2000 and 2005 for dozens of other nations did work out that way. There is hope. The Act also requires that any debt cancellation not be conditioned on adoption by the debtor nation of harmful economic policies. Those would be the right-wing policies that the World Bank and IMF love to impose on the helpless. More on that later in the podcast. And finally in the Jubilee Act, I love this one, the Act requires an audit of so-called odious lending to certain nations, including the aforementioned South Africa and the Congo. If done properly, can you imagine the skeletons that this'll dredge up? Now, in my personal view, not only should future international loan shark payments be cancelled, but if the loan was illegitimate in the first place, what about reparations to those countries of the principal and interest they've already paid? But even without such reparations, the Jubilee Act is the kind of progressive international economic justice measure that all progressives should rally behind. JubileeUSA.org has been spearheading the effort, and they deserve a lot of praise. I put a link to their website on the Blast the Right homepage. In all fairness, many Republicans at the House supported this progressive legislation, and I commend them for it. The Jubilee Act now goes to the Senate. It'll come up there for a vote relatively soon. So please, call your senators and ask them to co-sponsor and support S-2166. The Capitol Hill switchboard is 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. Even if you don't know the exact names of your two senators, the operator can connect you. And even if you have a right-wing senator or two, call them anyway. You never know on this issue. Up next, you'll hear about turmoil in Mexico over a proposed new oil law. What's that got to do with the Jubilee Act? Stay tuned. Blast the right. The right. Blast the right. The right. Your one-minute voting report. All your five-star reviews have helped boost Blast the Right in the iTunes ratings. Please keep them coming in. It's a one-time thing. People looking for podcasts who find Blast the Right easily may well be exposed to the progressive word in a way they haven't been before. Over at Podcast Alley, we're hanging in there at number eight in April. You know, we're only getting about half the votes we used to. If you voted in the past and haven't recently, please go vote. Thanks. Before I tell you about the progressive Mexican legislators physically taking over their Congress, let me tell you about how that's related to the third world debt issue. Last podcast, in the context of domestic U.S. politics, you heard my bottom line analysis of right-wingers. Everything the right-wing does is designed to accomplish one of two things, either A, transfer wealth from everyone else to the rich, or B, distract everyone else from the fact that A, that wealth transfer is occurring. Well, that rule applies internationally as well. There are four main ways the right utilizes to transfer wealth from the third world to the wealthy western industrialized world. I go over these in detail in podcast 56. That's a seminal podcast 
that I urge you to listen to if you haven't. Let me here briefly go over for you the four ways the West economically exploits the third world. The first one is, you guessed it, the making of those dubious loans to corrupt third world governments which entrap those nations on a downward spiraling debt treadmill. The next one is setting unfair conditions of international trade. For example, wealthy nations coerce third world nations to lower tariffs on manufactured goods, which the West can then export to the poor nations. But at the same time, the wealthy nations keep many of their own tariffs on raw materials which the developing nations would like to export to them, but still can't. Third, the sweetheart contracts between foreign companies and corrupt third world governments. These agreements allow the natural resource wealth of those nations to be plundered. More on this when we discuss the proposed Mexico oil law in a second. And number four, you have the World Bank and International Monetary Fund's so-called structural adjustment programs. These institutions require that third world nations adopt a stringent set of economic policies in order to get loans. These policies are called neoliberal, but that's a misnomer. They're based on pure right-wing free market free trade dogma. Elements include cut food subsidies, cut social spending on things like health care, privatize natural resources, eliminate tariffs, eliminate restrictions on foreign ownership of businesses. More on structural adjustment programs when we discuss the food riots. Back up to the overall four main ways level, do you know who George Kennan was? He was the formulator of the Cold War doctrine of containment. We would contain the Soviet Union, not go to war with them. He was one of the foremost policy creators in the post-World War II period. After he wrote about containment, Kennan revealed some thoughts which dovetail quite nicely with what you just heard about the four ways the West economically exploits the third world. In 1948, Kennan wrote as head of planning in the U.S. State Department, We have about 60% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. Our real task in the coming period will be to maintain this position of disparity. My methods 1 to 4 are simply the means the right-wingers in the West use to maintain this position of disparity. Let's go on to see what's been happening in Mexico. Mexico now has a right-wing president, Felipe Calderón, who got into office on a razor-thin margin in a contested election amid cries of vote fraud. Sound familiar? Calderon let it be known that he wanted to open up the state oil company Pemex to foreign investment, including joint ventures. That set off a firestorm. That's because ever since Mexico, quote, nationalized the oil industry in 1938, Pemex has been politically sacrosanct. Taking the oil fields back from foreign companies marked a high point in Mexican history. It was one of the few times Mexico's leaders stood up to business interests here in the United States on behalf of the Mexican public. So any suggestion of selling off the company to private investors sparked strong protests, especially from left-leaning parties. In the rest of the world, oil is a commodity, said a Senate aide. In Mexico, it's a symbol of sovereignty and nationalism. Close quote. Calderon claimed the outside expertise was needed to increase declining production. Progressive opponents countered that he was, quote, exaggerating the crisis and manipulating figures because he wants to privatize the industry, close quote. 
privatization of state-owned resources to allow multinationals to reap the profits instead of the people of a nation is, of course, a prime right-wing objective. As the man Calderon supposedly beat for the presidency, Andres Manuel López Obrador put it, quote, The government for 25 years has acted in a deliberate manner on purpose to ruin Pemex because they have only one goal, to make Pemex into booty to be plundered and privatize the oil business, close quote. He added that Mexico would cease being a country and, quote, would turn into a colony. In the face of all this opposition, Calderon backed off and submitted a less ambitious bill, but the progressives still saw it as a dangerous first step. So on April 10th, they stormed the Mexican Congress, shut it down, and began a sit-in. Putting this in a larger global context, what the Mexican legislators want to avoid is situations like Bolivia, where the state oil and gas company was privatized years ago and multinationals did loot the profits. Evo Morales in Bolivia has recently begun renationalizing their oil and gas industries, much to the alarm of right-wingers the world over. You can check out Podcast 88 for more information on that. To give you a clear picture, here's what Evo Morales told Amy Goodman in a Democracy Now! interview. We said we were going to nationalize the gas and oil sector. We did. Sin expropiar ni expulsar a ninguna empresa. Without expropriating or kicking out any of the companies. Dijimos que era importante tener socios, no patrones. We said it's important to have partners, but not bosses. Y cumplimos. And we did it. Porque el inversionista tiene derecho a recuperar su inversión y tener derecho a la ganancia. The investor has the right to recuperate their investment and to a, a reasonable profit. Pero tampoco podemos permitir que haya saqueo... But we can't uh, allow for the sacking of the country and only the, the companies benefit and not the people. I just came from a meeting of political analysts, foreign policy analysts here, and they seem to understand our proposals. Does that sound reasonable to you? Here's a bit more. Lo que explicaba es que a partir del decreto supremo de nacionalización What I explained is that after the supreme decree that did the nationalization se garantizaba eh, mayor seguridad we were guaranteeing greater security porque los nuevos contratos iban a ser transparentes y ratificados en el Congreso Nacional y no como otros convenios eran reservados, secretos sin la aprobación del Congreso Nacional. Because the new contracts were going to be transparent and ratified through Congress because previously the contracts were kept under wraps, secret and never ratified in Congress. Y he demostrado técnicamente, numéricamente, financieramente and we also showed technically, financially with numbers la empresa recuperaba su inversión y tenía derecho a la ganancia. That the company was going to be able to recover their investment and would have a reasonable profit. Aunque no ganaba harto como antes. They were going to uh, earn, have as much profit as before. Porque los megacampos. Because the largest oil fields. Las empresas solo aportaban el 18% al Estado y 82% para la empresa. Uh, excuse me, from the, from the largest gas fields. The companies only gave 18% of royalties to the state and took 82% y, y con el decreto hemos cambiado. But now with the new law, we've changed it around. Ahora 82% para el Estado, 18% para la empresa. Now 82% for the, for the government, for the state, and 18% for the companies. ¿Se quedan sin problemas? They're staying 
There's no problems. Dice Megacampo que controla la Petrobras. Hasta ahora ha habido ingresos adicionales a cerca de 150 millones de dólares. And from that large field that Petrobras is managing, we've already seen 150 million dollars coming into government coffers now. The prior split was multinationals get 82%, the Bolivian nation 18%? You can ask a friendly local right-winger, would they accept such terms on an oil well or gas field they owned? No individual in their right mind would make a deal like that, and neither would any government ruling in the best interests of its people. However, when you're ruling only in the interests of a tiny rich elite, 18% of the gas and oil profits is enough to make you and your relatively few cronies quite wealthy, thank you. Forget about the fact that much of the rest of the country is starving. How many tens or hundreds of billions of dollars was the Bolivian nation denied by its prior sweetheart 82-18% contracts? This is what the Mexican legislators want to avoid. By the way, Morales has set an April 30th deadline for his contract renegotiations, worth keeping an eye on. And you should also be aware that in Iraq, the Bush administration has been trying to ram down the throats of the protesting Iraqi people a hydrocarbons law which would start Iraq down the path of that same the multinationals get the lion's share of the profit model. You can hear more about that in Podcast 86. Now look at the grand historical picture. All over the third world, from colonial days to the present time, their gold, silver, oil was stolen or taken at obscenely low prices. All that wealth was transferred to the western industrializing or industrialized world, to Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, and the United States, for 500 years, five centuries. Right-wingers act the same all over the world and throughout history. And right-wingers always follow the same pattern. They start off like Bill O'Reilly, as when he here demonizes Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and other progressive Latin American leaders like Evo Morales. They're communist socialists down there. And then right-wingers make calls for action like Pat Robertson. You know, I don't know about this doctrine of assassination, but if he thinks we're trying to assassinate him, I think that we really ought to go ahead and do it. It's a whole lot cheaper than starting a war. We have the ability to take him out, and I think the time has come that we exercise that ability. We don't need another $200 billion war uh, to get rid of one you know, strong-arm dictator. It's a whole lot easier to have some of the covert operatives do the job and then get it over with. So now you see how the Mexican oil law turmoil fits together with the Jubilee Act. Both are instances of the worldwide struggle against right-wing policies. On to the food riots in a moment. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again to kind of catapult the propaganda. Catapult of propaganda. Catapult of propaganda. Chief Inspector Charles Dolphers now issued a comprehensive report that confirms the earlier conclusion of David Kay that Iraq did not have the weapons that our intelligence believed were there. Um, you may have seen headlines like the following. 
starving Haitians riot as food prices soar. Think storming the Bastille. Quote, Demonstrators have tried to storm the presidential palace in the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, as protests over hunger and rising food prices spread across the developing world. Demanding the resignation of President René Préval, the protesters attempted to break through the palace gates before being driven back by a contingent of Brazilian United Nations peacekeepers who used tear gas and rubber bullets. There is now a grave danger of a coup being triggered in what is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The prices of basic food, such as rice, beans, condensed milk, and fruit, have risen by more than 50% in Haiti, where the poor even rely on biscuits made of mud to get through the day. Even the price of this traditional Haitian remedy for hunger pangs has gone up to more than $5 for a hundred biscuits. Close quote. You may remember hearing about those biscuits of mud in Podcast 117. Didn't seem like things could get worse, but I guess they did. Protests, peaceful and otherwise, have occurred as well in Egypt, Indonesia, the Philippines, Morocco. After rationing was begun, Pakistan had to deploy thousands of troops to guard rice supplies. At least five people were killed in Haiti. Deaths occurred in some of these other countries as well. And this could be just the beginning, quote, Rising food prices could spark worldwide unrest and threaten political stability, the UN's top humanitarian official warned after two days of rioting in Egypt over the doubling of prices of basic foods in a year and protests in other parts of the world. They are dying because of their reaction to the situation, and if we don't take the necessary action, there is certainly the possibility that they might die of starvation. Naturally, people won't be sitting dying of starvation, they will react. Close quote. They will react. A bit of an understatement. A variety of factors have been blamed for rising food prices. Higher fuel costs, use of crops for biofuels, demand for food products from increasingly wealthy developing nations, market speculation. But all that misses asking the most important question. Why are all these people so vulnerable, so on the edge, so susceptible to starving? I agree with this analysis from the progressive think tank Food First. Its formal name is the Institute for Food and Development Policy. It was the book itself, Food First, that reignited my political passion and activism about 26 years ago. Here's their analysis, which says the real question is why governments are unable to respond to the needs of their citizens. The answer? Quoting, The policies that would mitigate the price rises, grain reserves, tariffs, social expenditure for poor people, have all been eroded by decades of neoliberal and free market, remember that means right-wing, global trade and development policy. In order to implement this policy, Governments have had to close their ears to the demands of their people. The World Bank won't give loans without structural adjustments that cut deeply into social programs. There has been a strong financial incentive, in other words, for governments to behave less democratically. The current protests are less chaotic riots of starving people than they are angry rebellions of hungry people fed up with the inequitable global food system. The solution to the present food crisis isn't bringing in the institutions of disaster capitalism that created the disaster in the first place. 
The solution is to democratize the world's food systems, taking the control away from the handful of agri-food oligopolies and putting it back in the hands of the farmers and consumers who are supposed to benefit from agriculture. Close quote. I agree. How about you? I want you to hear a great website comment to a story about the food rioting that was in the British newspaper The Guardian. This is from someone posting as Robinia. The American pundits are generally united in pointing fingers at the Chinese now that the general campaign has been set by the U.S. government. Why are the Haitian, Egyptian, and Filipino masses so off-message? Why do they blame their servile U.S. client governments for the mess? Of course, we will never be led to call for the dismantling of the neoliberal structural readjustment policies from the World Bank and IMF, which have pressured poor countries to stop subsidizing domestic staple production and shift resources to privatizations, land concentration, real estate and financial speculation, producing export products, and debt servicing. Close quote. Quite a bit, fairly well said in just a relatively few words. So you see, that's how it's all tied together. The Jubilee Act, the protesting occupying Mexican legislators, the food rioters, or rebels may be more accurate. All their efforts are geared towards reversing or overturning, doing away with right-wing policies. Speaking of angry rebellions of hungry people fed up with the inequitable global food system, I want to close with some prophetic words from someone whose assassination 40 years ago was just commemorated. Up until just recently, the mainstream media limited the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King to being a civil rights leader fighting segregation and the like. Recently, the corporate media has begun also talking about Dr. King's vehement opposition to the Vietnam War. But what Martin Luther King spoke about went far beyond Vietnam. Following are a few short excerpts from his Beyond Vietnam speech delivered a year to the day before his murder. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. Dr. King issued a call to action for all progressives that couldn't be more timely today. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. 
the shirtless and barefoot people of the land arising up as never before, the people who set in darkness have seen a great light, we in the West must support these revolutions. Yes, the true progressive position is to support the third world struggle for freedom in all its manifestations. That includes evolutionary self-curtailment of exploitation by the oppressor, like the U.S. House of Representatives passing the Jubilee Act. That includes supporting the oppressed when they seize their role as historical actors and take back from the thieves what was stolen from them, what rightly belongs to their nation, not the multinationals. Such as Abel Morales renationalizing his oil and gas industries, the Mexican legislators fighting against the reprivatization of theirs, and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela terminating oil industry sweetheart contracts and demanding more just terms. And finally, that includes as well, protesters seeking food to avoid starvation, sometimes desperate enough to resort to violence as they seek redress against unresponsive governments following right-wing policies. In my heart of hearts, the way I feel, and I hope the way you feel, is that No, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at Podcast Alley. And, of course... Post a five-star review for Blast the Right in the iTunes Music Store. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Why don't you come over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. Music credits. The break music you heard was The Schnee Speaks by KG House, the alternate Blast the Right theme by Nye's Music, Not the One Blues by Burnshee Thornside, and Catapult the Propaganda, also by Nye's Music. We'll close on a lighter note with a little bit of Clinton is to blame by the Freedom Toast. I don't know if you ever paid attention to the lyrics. Every time I hear them, it gives me a good laugh. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. I love getting email from you. You can write to me at rational at roadrunner.com. You know what? I think I'm caught up on my email backlog, at least back through last October. Before that, I'm not sure I'm going to ever get that far back. If you wrote to me and I didn't write back, I apologize. I just was swamped at that point. I did read everything that came in. I just didn't respond to some of them. So if you want, please send it again or write again. I will respond this time to you. I promise. You can also call in and leave a comment to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. <laughs>